Welcome to PageCast's holiday season. This December, we're looking back and reflecting on all the incredible books published in 2022. We've asked a few special guests to review their top pick for the year and to give us a taste of what they'll be reading this holiday and in the new year. We hope you enjoy this episode of PageCast's Books in Review for 2022. Hi, my name's Patricia McCracken. I've been the books editor of Farmers Weekly magazine for several years. And no, that doesn't mean that I only read books about pig breeding. In fact, I haven't ever read a single one. Fortunately, they go to the technical folk. I do the books for what they call the leisure reading pages. The principal brief is to tell farmers and would-be farmers who are also buying the magazine what they don't know about their country and their continent. Plus, we also cover a whole lot of other stuff, uh, natural history, um, what you might like to bake uh, naturally, and plenty of fiction. But the book I've chosen to talk to you about today is one that I think is quite revelatory for a lot of people and was revelatory for me in several different ways, which will come up as I'm talking. This is it. Um, It's called Don't Upset Umolume, with a definite exclamation mark. Uh, Subtitle is A Guide to Stepping Up Your Corsa Game, but it's not a language book, so park that expectation. It's by Hombakazi Mercy Nkandeka, who prefers to be called Mercy, which is the name which means most to her and her mother because her mother chose it for her. And what I'm going to share with you today is some of the chat that we had in the interview, some of my reactions to this book and why I'd say of all the books that I've read in the year, this is the one that I would say to people, be surprised enjoying a book that you never thought you'd pick up. In many ways, this is Mercy's COVID book, not just because it emerged around that time and there's been loads of authors writing COVID books, some of them going on for far too long and not edited down enough, but we give them the benefit of the doubt. It's because at that time, COVID kept her from immediately connecting with her destiny. But through what started for her as a few fun posts on social media, she actually cemented her bond with her culture in Mpondoland, the former Transkai. From that, she has now stepped fully into her own identity. And by the time the wheel turned, she was headhunted to move back into the environmental and agricultural mentoring that she had studied. All that while just happening to be in the right place at the right time in a cultural village on the wild coast. Mercy actually studied soil science and then went on to do a double masters shared in Montpellier in France and in Galway, University College Galway in Ireland. And that was a wonderful synergy just as much as that meeting in 
Wollongula on the wild coast was for her. I, for her, in some respects, though she was brought up there, um, it was ingrained in her. But like most of us, um, what happens in our childhood, we often just accept it's the way things are. It might not be that way somewhere else, but that's the way things are and were when we were brought up. Then she lands up in the west of Ireland. Now, I have to say, I'm Irish from the northwest of Ireland. And I know that in the west of Ireland, particularly, everyone is very proud of the historic Gaelic culture. They're by contrast with South Africa, it's one of the few areas that actually speaks Irish or Gaelic, Gaeltacht it's called, almost felt to me when Mercy talked about it as if when she walked into the vibrant city of Galway, which has jazz festivals, oyster festivals, and is, is very cosmopolitan while retaining a huge Irish identity, that all of a sudden she somehow felt invisible amongst all these new influences. What changed for her was when she started saying, yeah, I've got a culture of my own and wore different bead ensembles that she'd made with possibly with different messages, sometimes just with different colorations for her outfits, the kind of things that she could talk to people about and that they could talk to her about. It was a conversation starter, but then it became a lot more than just beads because COVID plunged her back into staying with her mother and village life. In the book, she speaks movingly, for instance, of coming back to this after traveling the world. Most particularly, the tradition of burying the umbilical cord and what it still means. As she writes very early on here, page 30, when Kosa people ask you where you come from, they say, Ipi Inkaba Yako, where is your umbilical cord? Meaning, where did your mother bury your umbilical cord? That is the umbilical strength of your connection to the land. So much so that when she was part of a short documentary in 2021, she and the movie crew went to what had been her grandmother's home where she was mostly brought up and where her own Ingaba is buried. That, as she writes, the six-cornered little hut is no longer there, but I can trace where it used to stand. I'm always astounded by the connection I feel when I go back to Makulu's home. It is a reminder of my roots and the place of my very first memories, like climbing Makulu's guava, orange and peach trees. I left from Makulu's home on my first day of school. When I walk there, I also think of my late father. I still picture him sitting by the door on Makulu's couch. Walking around where Makulu's house was rejuvenates me. That is the strength of the sense of place and symbolized by that 
umbilical cord. Yes, it's an instruction, a passage of information for those of us who don't know about it, but the emotion behind it is as strong as the information may be new, tells us why people feel so strongly about their heritage and their culture. So, so much so that she jumped straight into the modern world with it. And as she said to me, social media kept her sane. She's quite open about the fact that she was happy living in the village, but equally she was stressed out because she wasn't getting um, any traction for the jobs that she wanted to be applying for with that double masters. So to keep herself sane, social media and Instagram with pictures of her tracing her own journey of rediscovery and the cult cultural traditions that she was observing around her. So in a sense, she did what could be described as market research for her book on social media. The concept hadn't come to her immediately, but the response was so strong and continuing that she decided to collate it all into a book and find out more, fill out fill in the gaps in her own knowledge and understanding. Now, the title is aimed at her initial premise that it's city types who need this guide. And I was quite surprised by that thought. I'd been brought up in a tiny village myself, just 120 people, and in fact, I've been taken aback at disparaging references that I'd heard to the rurals in South African cities. But then I worked at Borna magazine for 10 years and many of our staff went back to rural areas for Christmas holidays, weddings, funerals. Quite a few had been brought up in places like Bizana, Luzikisiki and Matatiele. And it turned out they'd mastered the art of what a sociologist might call something like culture switching. So clearly there was a happy medium there. Nevertheless, it was perhaps a happy medium that was being eroded generation by generation. Mercy May makes a really humorous and realistic observations here and there about these people. And it made me realize that my view is actually, uh, let's say, limited. For example, when she's talking about the city slickers, she emphasizes how important the greeting is in Rosa culture, amongst others, of course. You simply do not pass people without greeting them, she writes. Whether you're walking in the road somewhere, making your way to the river, passing an uncle at his kraal or entering a home, you greet whoever you encounter because not greeting people is associated with pride and not caring for others. City dwellers get in trouble with Umalume when they come back to the village and pass people without greeting. Umalume gives the slick city snobs 
some seriously disapproving side eyes for not greeting. And then she goes on for another paragraph or so about the minutiae of greeting and how, especially if you're greeting an elder, you have to be prepared for a long catch-up on what's going on in his or her home, with his or her animals, and so on. And therefore, always allow plenty of time when you're moving from place to place. What she says, despite these observations, is that culture is a living thing. It's something that people adjust their circumstances to. For me, that's a bit like a traditional song that everybody sings slightly differently, which is a bit more than a cover on modern music, but a bit less, obviously, than writing a new song. This also suggests to me sympathy with the city slickers who live with a diluted culture in the city melting pot. Along the way, in this book, Mercy celebrates the versatility, creativity and wit of Indigenous language. Just check out how the, quote, phantom children listed for grants were called after plastic bottles, for instance. This is a book with a huge heart. It's full of pride. It reflects deeply on the meaning of culture to us and champions identity. As it happens, one of my next assignments was editing an article on the training of young eco-champions in Bondoland to reinforce the strengths of this cultural and beautiful environment among both residents and tourists. The baton is definitely being passed to a new generation. And Mercy has now translated her experience and her earlier agriculturist studies and work into researching a PhD on traditional medicines. Now, that to me is a great way of closing the circle and taking it higher. Don't upset Umalume. Finally, a few of the books that I'm looking forward to reading over the year-end period. I must admit that I split my reading at this time into two sections. There is the recuperative reading where I delve into fiction and interesting but popular non-fiction. Some of the titles that I've put aside to read then are Blood on the Snow, which is a detective mystery set in Siberia and exploring the world, which is non-fiction. Another one that is almost pure gossip to me is What Now by Anne Glenn Connor. She is already a best-selling author of the first half of her life memoir called Lady in Waiting because she was a, a lady in waiting to Queen Elizabeth II from the time of her coronation onwards. And there's a personal connection because my father ran the pottery 
which the the Leicester family, which to which Anne Glen Connor belonged before her marriage, set up in the Palladian home in a huge park in Norfolk. So I actually encountered some of the people and the bits that you didn't encounter, you read in the newspapers, the wild parties she and her husband had for Princess Margaret in the West Indies and um, the wild lives of her children and so on. Now she's reflecting on them and it will be interesting to see how she copes with that because there will obviously be some difficult times but I'm also looking forward to reading about a place that's close to my heart. And then finally, I can hardly hold it up, this one, The Ink Black Heart, which is the latest from, I was going to say J.K. Rowling, but it's J.K. Rowling writing as Robert Galbraith. And I must say, I'm quite a sucker for these murder mysteries and a very interesting series character. And there are more than a thousand pages. So that will keep me going for I don't know how long. I was sent recently some stickers that said, please don't disturb, I'm reading. Well, that will be me. Thanks very much and happy reading to yourselves. Thanks for listening to this episode of PageCast. To make the holiday season that much better, we are giving away weekly book bundles of all the top picks. Follow us on Instagram at Jonathan Bull Publishers to find out more. From everyone at PageCast, happy holiday.